So hello and welcome to an episode of Elixir Mix. Again, I'm hosting. This is Alan Weimer. And we have on the panel also Adi Iyengar. Hello. And we have Philip. I don't think I asked you for your last name. And I believe it's something Portuguese. So it might be tricky for me. Yeah, I'm not even going to try. There's some letters in there I don't often see. Maybe you can <laughs> introduce, introduce yourself for us. <laughs> it's fine. I'm Philip Cavasso. And yeah, glad to be here. Yeah, so and uh, maybe, as I say, maybe you can introduce yourself some more, but we can just get on to the topic, and that's going to obviously give the introduction. You're working over at Superbase, which we talked to around a year ago, right? Just right around the time when this uh, real-time module came out from Superbase, right? Maybe you can explain what is that and kind of what's been going on since one year, right? How's it, how's it been? So yeah, to give a bit of context, sorry, and the proper presentation, I'm one of the Elixir developers at Superbase. Uh, currently, I'm uh, one of the maintainers of uh, the real-time product. And previously, I've also worked with Logflare, which is basically the logging the logging platform that Superbase bought some time ago, and we've continued development on that. And yeah, now focusing more, way more with real-time. And real-time has been a product that has been out for about one year. It will be one year in March, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, it has, first of all, it has been really fun. <laughs> the choice of Elixir is still shining as a good choice, honestly, where one of the main things, it's imagine Phoenix channels as a product. That's the, the main gist of it, where broadcasting and presence, it's basically Phoenix channels as a product. And again, that enabled a lot, a lot of, a, a really cool feature for Superbase, above all, with not, not a lot of complexity. So yeah, it has been quite fun, quite interesting, and we can go into some of the challenges and some of the problems. But again, quite happy with the, the state of how things are in terms of Elixir usage. But I think the, if I remember correctly, the real-time stuff was all about trying to solve the case of people trying to use Superbase as a real-time product with like inserting data into Postgres yes. and, and it obviously being not performant, right? Yeah, that's, that's one of the features. So real-time is actually three products at once. There's the presence part of it, which is, again, Phoenix presence. There's the broadcast element of it, which is basically Phoenix channels. And there's an extra feature, which, which is Postgres changes, which the idea of it, it's basically track the changes on your wall file. And whenever someone inserts, updates, or deletes something, it will broadcast a message to whoever is connected via WebSockets. That has been probably the most groundbreaking change, groundbreaking groundbreaking element of the product because it's something that it's not that common to see. And above that, we actually apply some RLS rules, so role-level security, to the information that is provided to users, which enables some fancy use cases of I don't want to show X, I want to show Y to a given user. I want to hide some information. I want to expose all the information. It's, it gives you way more leverage on what you are able to show uh, users and, and hide from them, basically. You can get this kind of information from the wall files? Uh, yes. So we're using a piece of software called Walrus, which was developed in part uh, internally, which what it's doing, it's pulling information out of the database, out of the wall file. And when you pull that information out of it, we basically consume it. And we have a pulling mechanism that pulls all the information from that Walrus function and just broadcasts it to the interested parties. Yeah, that's basically the how it works. 
Interesting. I would think that maybe you could just leverage the the PubSub mechanism. So, so I mean, because what I did before is I actually I leveraged PubSub within Postgres using a trigger. I can. I didn't know that you you know that using wall wall files would actually be you know useful. But that's that's interesting because there's there's a lot of data in that right with passing things around. I didn't know you can get the information that you need, the permissions and all that. Yeah, the Walrus basically what it does it's since it's pulling, it applies. On the fly, basically, when you're requesting the information, it applies the RLS policies. So that's how it verifies, okay, this this user, I'll be able to show what I need, this I won't. Uh, in this mm-hmm. case, it's a subscription. I think that's the concept we we named, we named it. But yeah, that's the idea. It's basically we have a pooling operation that fetches the information for a given, u- for a given user, a given subscription, and that does the RLS policies on top of it. And based on that, it will show or not, basically. But again, we're kind of exploring different avenues because there's some impact on doing it this way. So one of the problems is, we're first of all, we're doing pulling instead of pushing, basically, which can be a problem, right? Because imagine that you have a very active database and we're doing a pulling request every 100 milliseconds or a bit less, if I'm not mistaken. So imagine that we're doing... I don't know, thousands and thousands and thousands of events within that 100 milliseconds, the wall records, the, 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 the change, the change sets would be giant, which can lead to problems. Basically, we might not be able to broadcast fully. We might get fragmented information. There's a lot of things that break when you're doing pulling on it. Plus, applying RLS policies every time you're pulling also has an impact on the database because RLS policies, if not properly implemented, they're really, really heavy. That's actually one of the main things we've seen at Superbase and <laughs> deserves a shout out, which is whenever you want to apply RLS policies, be sure to, you understand the impact of what you're doing. Because usually people might actually do RLS policies on stuff that it's not properly indexed or, or something along those lines. And those policies will bite you. They, they will take a long time. Even for a simple select query, they take time. But for something that it's pulling every 100 milliseconds, if you are if you have a really complex non-optimized RLS policy, it becomes really bothersome. So that's one of the avenues we're trying to improve, which is instead of doing this as a pulling operation, we want to do it as a push operation. And the concept here will be on first connect, we'll check your RLS policies and we'll propagate that ac- uh, across real time and say, look, this person wants to connect to channel X. Uh, they can only receive uh, events of type insert for this specific type, whatever, whatever. Basically, define the tree of operations that are able, they are able to consume, and that will be propagated across their socket, basically. And for their socket, those are the only permissions they're able to use, which enables us to do push instead of pull, because then we can have Elixir receiving events from Postgres. So every change will actually enter Elixir, Potentially, we'll also be batched where we basically say, look, give us within this time window or X amount of events, push it to Elixir. We'll do the filtering. We'll do the proper authorization checking and send it to the user filtered and all cleaned up so we can proceed. But that inversion of we're, st- we're stopping pulling and we're going for a pushing mechanism should increase performance because that's one of the pains we've been seeing. And since we're always doing that pulling, we're always trying to fetch information where sometimes RLS policies are not optimized because it, they're, they're tricky. That's the reality of it. 
changing this paradigm to a pushing operation in theory should improve performance. And that's something we've been working on the last two or three months. And we're, I think we're getting closer, hopefully. At least we have some PRs that implement a proof of concept and we just, we want to extend that to all the features now. And that's the main goal for the next couple of, of months. That's definitely a lot of work. I'm kind of curious about, you know, like, where did you guys get the idea to use Elixir and Phoenix for this kind of stuff? I mean, obviously, you know, it, it is popular, but it is kind of a niche language, a niche kind of thing. You know, like, where did, I mean, were you guys using Elixir already? And then you're like, this is perfect because we know it? Or did you hear about it? You know, what what, what happened? So, first of all, credit where credit is due, which is our CEO, uh, uh, Paul Copplestone, was, was already an Elixir fan, even before real-time uh, he already had some really big interest in, in Elixir. And I think he, in terms of managed services, he was one of the first Postgres managed service that just tried to pull some of the Elixir crowd uh, because they saw that this, even if people thought it was a niche two years ago, I truly believe we're seeing more and more that it's not a niche. Even yesterday, I saw an opening for a job in, at Apple. <laughs> so... It, it clearly, it's less and less of a niche as we move forward. And he had the vision to kind of look at it and go, okay, yeah, this ecosystem seems to be growing at a steady pace, so it might be worth it to invest in it. Also, the other person, I think it's heavily responsible on this, was Chase, is the, the person that built Logflare and Superbase acquired Logflare because Superbase needed a logging solution. When you have a managed service uh, like Superbase, you really need to give as much information as you can to your users. And to do that in an efficient way, you either pay a lot or you build your own thing. And one of our core principles, it's usually don't build your own thing if the community has something that has been built. And it's better to contribute to the community than to build a new standard. Almost that XKCD comic where there's always a, an open door for a new standard. We really like to avoid that at Superbase. If there's a solution within the open source community, we either invest on it, invest in the sense of sponsoring it, sometimes hire contributors, apply our own, our own time to it, which is really common. So yeah, Chase was actually one of uh, a company that Superbase bought. Uh, it was still an indie dev kind of situation. And it was built with Elixir and uses Broadway and BigQuery as the, the, I think the main technologies we could, we could call it, Broadway for ingestion and, and parsing of the events and then uh, BigQuery to just dump everything and use BigQuery, which is actually probably the best product, product from Google. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's even in there. It should be way more public, but yeah, BigQuery, it's insanely good uh, for, for large data um, analysis. And... I think Chase and Paul were basically the main drivers for Elixir. And then we also have a really good Erlang developer called Staz, ABC3. I think that's his handle in, in Twitter. Having an Erlang developer in your Elixir team, it's insanely good. <laughs> he has an, a ton of knowledge. For example, he pointed us to a library that it's quite interesting, but I've never seen being used at Elixir, which is SYN, S-Y-N, which imagine it as Nisia but eventual, eventually consistent. So instead of just trying to dump and write directly, it, it will get there. It will write, write to in memory eventually. It, it's not immediate. It will be there at some point in time. 
and it's really good and it's really performant and we use it a lot at real time. And finally, the other person that pushed for it was Wenbo, which is also a really good developer. He got really hyped with Elixir and just, just went with it. And again, overall, I, from what I've seen, for the most part, it's really the love of the language and the ease of use of the language. That was the main buy-in for sure. For example, real-time, imagining implementing real-time in any other language feels tricky <laughs> because uh, due to uh, Phoenix, the Phoenix framework basically gives you presence and, and channels really easily, and they're really solid and they're really good. If we go a level deeper, just imagining implementing PubSub across extra X amount of machines that are actually connected. I'm already hearing Redis <laughs> and in the background kind of in panic because Redis also would then need to scale and not only your, your service, Redis would also, also need to scale. Attached to Postgres, which also needs to scale. So you now have to three things to scale. If you have Elixir, you remove that. <laughs> so you only have to serve scale your servers and your databases. And if we have actually go even lower level, the capability of connecting multiple nodes within an Erlang cluster, it's, it's insane and it simplifies a lot of normal operations. We don't need... The last time I, I, I wasn't in Elixir, uh, people were discussing on how to connect microservices between them. And I've heard REST APIs, I've heard JRPC with protobufs, I've heard... There's a new one that I don't even, I don't even remember the acronym. <laughs> They're basically... The amount of technologies that exist to replicate what Erlang has done 20 years ago, it's insane. And I think it's actually 30 years ago. But that capacity of connecting multiple nodes, it's so well done and so solid that it removes so many layers of, of complexity that it just makes a really good developer experience. And I think that's it above all. It's developing something that looks scary in at least a proof of concept you'd be able to build in a couple of weeks. And it would be solid enough for you to think, okay, yeah, I might be able to get a beta user to test it out, or even a, let's call it an alpha user. Uh, I might be able to give this to a user for him to test out. And with Elixir, that's not a daunting prospect. It's actually an interesting prospect because then you find bottlenecks somewhere else. So yeah, again, the choice of technology is really driven by what's available in the open source market, let's call it like that. Phoenix is available, Elixir is available, Erlang clustering is available. We remove a lot of abstraction layers in the middle. It becomes really bare bones. This is just Elixir kind, uh, kind of situation. And yeah, it, it, it works really, really well. Yeah, that's definitely some, some solid reasons, right? But I mean, it's been, it's been one year. Is it, has it been in beta the entire time? Because obviously when it first came out, it's kind of beta or alpha stage. Has it ever moved out of that stage or it's still in that stage? No, it's still on that stage. We actually had beta since then and we had the version one and the version two and we're going to have version three because I that's, I think, in major part because we feel that we only want to leave beta when we feel that the product is solid for an enterprise user, for example. When we're able to say, look, this is the benchmark we're able to achieve this amount of events in this amount of time and this amount of concurrent users, etc. I don't think we're at that stage at the moment. It's something we're working on to improve. And by then, then probably this V3 will actually be the point of going 
GA, but we're not sure. At least presence, we actually have a table somewhere, but presence and broadcast, we feel it's solid enough. The Postgres changes, it's the element we want to improve a lot. We were really fortunate to have a, a really good uh, load tester um, at Superbase. He's called Igor. <laughs> he has the best dashboards possible to reduce your confidence, which is really good. It's a really good skill to have. He has uh, he has automated a lot of benchmarks. He has done, a, for example, even for so Superbase has uh, has been developing and co-developing PG Vector with some other companies. For example, Amazon is also in the mix when uh, AWS mainly. Uh, it's also in the mix for PG Vector. And there's some other companies that want to use PG Vector as their AI vector database. And for example, Igor was one of the persons that just went and tested the libraries really thoroughly, unbiased, and basically drove the development of, of those libraries to be better, basically. And PG Vector has a lot to hold to, to his benchmarks. And real-time also has, um, because he was able to find bottlenecks where we didn't expect. And when those are fixed, then we feel, okay, we'd go in GA with the Postgres changes element of it. And part of that work is that inversion of, of pu uh, pushing instead of pulling. And I think at that point, after Igor does his tests, after we're completely sure that this is the route to follow, then we'll probably go in GA also with Postgres changes. But again, not set in stone. Above all, we don't we don't want to follow hype and, and rush a product. We rather have a lot of security that what we deliver actually performs as people expect. And rushing to GA can usually lead to more problems than than none. Yeah, yeah, I I, I also think so. You don't want to be too rushed, right? But now you got me kind of curious about these testings, right? Like, how do you how do you write these tests? What are you actually trying to achieve? What is the benchmark where you're saying, okay, now it's ready, it's performant enough? I mean, do you, is this based off of people, like a consistent type of app and what they're writing or what they're sending across? Like, what? how do you know when it's good enough for GA in terms of these tests being written and passing? So load testing, in my opinion, is a hidden form of art because you need, you need to look at the context of what you're testing. You need to understand the kind of user that's going to test it. And every time, for example, we talk with Igor, he doesn't care about what's behind the scenes. He cares. He also cares about that because he wants to understand the bottlenecks he found. But what he cares mostly is how people use it. For example, for real time, he knows that most people will use it as I have X amount of concurrent users because I'm this type of user within Supervise. I know that this type of user, let's imagine, let's give it a name. Let's call it an enterprise user. Uh, they, we know that their database instance is a uh, for Excel, something like that. This is the the profile of the enterprise user. It's probably not even a for Excel. It's a 16 Excel or something like that. We expect them from uh, success calls, from outbound calls, etc. We know that the average users they expect is 50,000 uh, concurrent users. Let's multiply that by through by by two, by three, etc. Kind of really push the limits because usually when uh, when a customer says, I have 50,000 concurrent, 50, concurrent users, usually they reach, they reach 30,000, not 50, but we want to play it safe. So it's better to over-inflate the numbers than under-inflate them, and they have a bad experience and lose confidence. So yeah, there's a lot of art behind this. And the idea, for example, for real-time, some of the benchmarks he ran was, let's have 50,000 concurrent users connecting, 
let's emulate that so it's not 50,000 out of the blue. Let's do that uh, slowly, adding them, rapidly adding them, kind of emulating different types of users. Let's imagine that you are doing a giveaway and everyone connects out of the blue because they needed to be connected at 2 a.m. Okay, everyone connects at 2 a.m. and out of nowhere, you have 50,000 connections. He emulates that kind of usage, but he also emulates the other kind of usage where you have a constant number of low usage, then it increases a bit, then it slows down and then increases in, in a really high peak. So that's the kind of tests you need to do. It's overinflate them a bit, a bit or a lot, depends on your confidence. Overinflate them, try to emulate your user, not your system. Uh, don't think as a technical person, think as a user. And that's, in my opinion, that's where a lot of people lose their train of thought. They just go, I've built this. I know the ins and outs. I know how it will perform better. And they test for that. They don't test for, okay, how do you, how do you use this? Uh, if you were a user, forget that you developed. Forget that it exists. You just bought it. How do you expect to use it? And now imagine that you are a small indie developer. So probably you don't need a large number of co concurrent users, but you might have a lot of database changes. What's that developer profile? Basically, you need to put yourself in the shoes of your user and forget the technical details. After you have the results, then think about the technical details. And I think that's where we are at the moment. Uh, Igor has done his performance testing. We understand some of the bottlenecks. We found some new ones, actually, from some testing he did yesterday. And again, we only are able to find it because he looks at it as a user and exercises the system as a user, not as a one of the developers of, of within Supervise. And that's how we will feel confident. It's when we have those numbers of a bit overinflated that represent our use base. And is it's actually based on profiles of our users. And when we have that, for example, latency, it's not higher than 200 milliseconds, stuff like that. We, we need to have a ballpark number there where we say, look, this is our latency. And this is our latency at this amount of concurrent users at this amount of Postgres changes, when we have all of that consolidated and kind of in a in a board where we say, okay, now we're confident, then we go GI. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm kind of curious about the load testing, right? Uh, which uh, libraries you're doing with that? I think Adi knows much more than me about this stuff. I'm sure you've done tons of load testing. I think there's a specific one that I believe the Phoenix team is using to test out Phoenix channels. Is that the same one? Where you can like just jump on a bunch of channels or something? We are using something different. So we have one thing called Superbench, which, if I'm not mistaken, uses, um, first of all, uses pocket base to store information. It uses K6 for load generation. If I'm not mistaken, at least I remember the road to 1 million blog post. That's really old. <laughs> it's still really good, but it's old. We need a, revi a revised version. But that blog post used Sunk which is also an online uh, tool. We didn't go with that. We went with K6. It uses Terraform for boot up machines. Kind of, okay, let's ramp up a thousand machines that emulate, each one will emulate a thousand users. Stuff like that. Grafana for uh, dashboards. So we were able to actually see all the curves and everything working as expected and permit us to actually pull the information out of it. But yeah, this was Igor's work and it, it it's... On honestly, really good. It's really useful. 
you keep mentioning this Igor guy. I don't I, Maybe he should have came on since you, <laughs> you keep mentioning oh, yeah, 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 all yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah, maybe you should have came yeah, on yeah. to talk more. I'm kind of curious yeah. about you know how the testing stuff works because that's something that I think I don't do enough sometimes because sometimes you just get like a random ton of users and you're like, oh crap, I didn't even test this stuff. <laughs> It'd be nice to kind of get an idea about what's his method because he seems to be coming up with some good benchmarks and everything. Yeah, I mean, it's not an opportunity. I would say like most engineers get to work in, right? Like most products are not going to experience the kind of load Philip is talking about here. But yeah, building an open source uh, project that's supposed to be scalable in real time is one of those products. Yeah, yeah, it, you're, you're so right. Like uh, testing load and it is an art and it's, I think it's like, you almost have to be so pessimistic about your own product as a load tester. <laughs> it's so weird. We also use KSX to generate load. I think I think we use uh, I forget like Locust or something too for like the actual simulation of users. Uh, I don't think we have a I don't think we have like m- uh, machines dedicated or something like that. But uh, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy the amount of load we're able to generate with the, uh, I, I think we pay a good amount of money for it, but still like, uh, I would have imagined a lot more money to like simulate, you know, like uh, tens of millions users worth of load. Yeah, it's re- it's really awesome the uh, how, how far load testing tools have come in the last uh, 10 years or so. Fully agree. Fully agree. And again, people should see this as an investment of their product quality because it's, I'm all for, Throw it at the user, let them do the production in a testing, in a production, let's do testing in the production environment. Let's be sure that our feature works. That's fine for a small subset. But when things break, it's not only your feature that is breaking, it's the confidence on your product. And confidence is way trickier to regain. And a lot of the problems that people face, usually they're probably, I don't want to create some random percentage, but the high percentage of the problems usually are connected with uh, latency, uh, load, uh, some misconfiguration on your database, some missing index, all of those things, if you actually had load testing, you'd probably be able to catch them. And not fancy load testing. Again, uh, K6, you can run it locally. You can do already some of that load testing against a staging environment. It shouldn't take that long. It, It should be a quick script, and you should be able to get, okay, what's the limit of our database? even in a local environment of 1,000 users. And you can kind of go there and, and do that with low low price point. But if you even if you need to spend money on it, it's really worthy money because it's less support tickets you're getting. It's less bugs you're fixing long-term. It's less interruptions. It's less context switching. It's just a way cheaper approach than let's throw it to the world and see if it burns. Which is it seems to be the normal, the normal way of, of working. Again, it doesn't fix everything. There's always the the ghost in the machine where, if it goes to production, there's some weird AWS configuration you've missed and network doesn't work as you expect. There's always I don't know my database worked really well locally. It doesn't because Aurora, for example, or or RDS are not to the same version I had, and there's a bottleneck in some function. There's always some weird quirks, but for a high percentage of your problems, if you do load testing even locally, you'd probably be able to find a lot of the problems your users will find. And that alone is worth a ton of money because you're saving in support, you're saving in engineering time, because if you're still in development phase, you don't need to do context switching, it just becomes 
another task you need to fix before launching. It's it's a lot of savings long term, which is way more valuable uh, than any than people actually give it credit for. But attached to that, yeah, Igor should be <laughs> invited because load testing again, it's an art, and more people should be doing it the sooner they can. And uh, as Adi mentioned, uh, the fact that we have K6, for example, it's a beautiful tool. You can run it locally. It shouldn't be that heavy. And it uses, if I'm not mistaken, TypeScript to actually run the scripts. So it's simple. It's, if you have this in your repository with your team and you say, look, let's, uh, I've built this load test. This is, this is a profile, uh, X amount of calls, whatever, whatever. And they're doing this, uh, this action. Then you have a load test that you can share with your team. They'll be able to check before committing how did their changes impacted the code. If performance is the same, if it got worse. So overall, it's just one small, one really small stone in your, in your foot that can, can prevent a lot of problems in the future. And it's just one small extra step that it doesn't cost that much. But yeah, it's, that's when we'll get that confidence. It's load testing, load testing, load testing. When you're doing this testing, though, are you, are you gathering metrics all the time, like from the beam, to figure out where potential bottlenecks could be, or you're just you yes, are, okay. yes. How, how does that work? Uh, I I can give you an example of so. First of all, telemetry, <laughs> another core library that works brilliantly. We're pulling metrics to from Prome- using Prometheus. So basically, Prometheus aggregates uh, and pulls all the information out of our server from a metrics endpoint. Those uh, metrics come from collection of telemetry and handlers. We're also using Promex to fetch a lot of the nitty-gritty Ecto, Phoenix, etc. telemetry. We also have our own telemetry. Instrumenting Erlang is also really easy because, for example, uh, one of the bugs we had, we can talk about that one, we only found it because we saw a spike in the number of created processes. So every time we... One of our metrics is it's really how many processes were created in this time span. And we see that number at around uh, 800, 1,000, and that's normal operations. It's basically people coming, it's people leaving, it's, okay, this person has started a new WebSocket connection, so that's one process. There's a, then there's another process for us, uh, a supervision work tree we have for the Postgres changes, then there's another X amount of sons within the supervision tree. So usually that's around 1,000. And for some reason, we were looking at a spike of 20,000 out of nowhere and 30,000 and 50,000, which actually led to the node to be killed. It killed because it was out of memory, because since it reached 50,000 or more processes created, it was basically getting all the RAM memory full. We do have beefy machines, but not that beefy. And basically it just went out of memory and DCS killed them, uh, which is the normal type of operations, booted up a new cluster, uh, sorry, a new node for the cluster, connected and everything ran smoothly, but we still had those out-of-memory restarts that were annoying us. So again, due to that telemetry of Erlang itself, we were able to understand, okay, there's something here misbehaving, where we just see a jump in the number of processes being created. It turns out that uh, we're using more than Ecto. We're using a lot of Postgres. And if you go that low level, you actually need to learn more about DB connection, or I think it's DB connection. Uh, because Postgres, Postgres, at the end of the day, it's basically an abstraction for DB connection. And DB connection has a lot of really good options, namely backoff. They have uh, different types of backoffs for your uh, connection pool. And one of the things we are not doing properly 
it's if we if we use backoff type of stop, the process is not properly linked to the parent process, so they would stay alive, meaning that the supervisor wouldn't die, but the DB connection would fail, leading to the WebSocket to fail, leading to the user to reconnect, leading to connect, uh, trying to connect to the database, the database would say too many connections, and it would just loop on this cycle of, I'm trying to create more connections and not being able to. Since each connection to DB connection is a pool, it's actually five processes that are happening there. I think our configuration is five. I'd need to double check that. But yeah, so for each time it failed, it created at least five processes, including the supervision tree above. So this loop just led to more and more and more and more process creation. It's not an easy problem to debug, but it's easier than in other languages because, again, we had the telemetry for that. We knew where the problem was. We knew that due to the amount of number of processes being created, the problem is in process creation. It kind of becomes a one-to-one match of we know where it's starting. We also noticed that it started with user X tried to connect and they had... Uh, they, they started to see messages on their side, too many connections. Okay, that's another hint. This is at the database level. And then we looked, okay, what, what are we using? Postgres and DB connection. So with only two hints, we're able to find at least the two points of breakage, which is DB connection or Postgres. Again, Postgres, we knew that this is just a layer, uh, an abstraction layer for DB connect. It should be on DB connect. So we just jumped into the docs and another big advantage of Elixir that I don't think it's stated enough, documentation shines. It's beautiful. It works really well. And it's probably the only language I search more in the docs than I search in Stack Overflow, which for me, it's the best thing in the world. <laughs> when you get your own conclusions from documentation, it means it's solid. So yeah, we've looked into the documentation of it. And basically, they said at some point, okay, uh, be careful with uh, back off. And I think there's, I'm not sure if there's a mention there, but I think it actually mentions that if you use a uh, uh, backend, uh, backoff type stop, it doesn't link the process. There's some nuance there. I, I remember uh, Staz is actually the one finding that uh, small nuance. And yeah, it, it's a problem. Again, not that easy to, to pinpoint, but much easier than other languages because we were able to, due to the amount of telemetry, due to the logs we were able to see, it was easier to get to a conclusion of where the problem should be. And we were able to confirm it. Yeah. yeah um, Go ahead. No, no, I, I think, Alan, you brought, you brought up, and this is a great example of, you know, kind of like having, I mean, load testing is awesome. It's the first step, but you need observability. You need all, like, and you need ability to also read your observability tools, like uh, familiarity with your observability tools. For, for you to, you know, debug things like this. And, and luckily, like you said, Elixir has like great documentation. Yeah, that, this is a very interesting problem. We haven't run into something like this yet. I guess we haven't had a database connection that kept getting disconnected, I guess. Like we, we usually, when that happens, we just rely on the supervisor, the max restarts stuff. But it's an interesting one. We've never had, we have never tweaked back off at all. Very cool. <laughs> That's also one of the other advantages, uh, advantages of Ecto, for example. Ecto handles a lot of this since it has its own supervision tree. If something is wrong with the database, it cares for you. Since we don't, we're not using that layer for direct, um, because we need to do some other, uh, some extra stuff, mainly uh, dynamic connections. There's one thing which is with REPL, which you are able to change. No, with dynamic REPL, that's it. We're able to change 
where the repository is connecting, but it's a bit weird and tricky to work with daily and to persist the connection. So we have to go Postgres. But if you don't need that, Ecto basically kills this problem, uh, which is, again, another shining library uh, within our ecosystem. And I'm glad that people don't need to deal with this kind of problems for most use cases. We only deal because, again, we need a direct database connection, doing some extra stuff uh, because of Walrus and, and some of other caveats. And that's the only reason. Otherwise, we would go all in Ecto because there's really no good reason to go so low level, or at least you should avoid it as much as you can. Very cool. I guess, uh, Alan, I'm, I'm very curious about a particular product. And since we're talking about DB connections and database connection pools, like I would love to talk a bit more about uh, a supervisor. And I guess, like, I don't know, Philip, uh, do you, I don't know if you work with that product much or not, but would love to get like an overview of like what it does. Say, like, how is it? Is it supposed to be a replacement of like PG Pool, PG Pouncer? Like, w- yeah, why does supervisor even exist? <laughs> okay. So, I didn't work on it. I'm actually trying to help out now because we're going to do the migration from normal connections to, uh, well, IP, uh, I'm not sure if you read, but IPv4 will be paid for AWS, which is, <laughs> it will be interesting. We'll see some uh, some billing ballooning out of control. Uh, but yeah, AWS will start to request payment for IPv4, which means that, yeah, bills will become higher and higher. And supervisor really fits in really well with that problem because then we have a middleware where you are able, we are able to basically provide a bunch of IPv4s for that specific host. And then after supervisor, it becomes IPv6. So it will reduce costs heavily. Not only that, we're centralizing pooling to one service instead of having it per database. This offers a lot of advantages. First of all, not having your pooler within your database reduces CPU usage because pulling it, it can, it's not very demanding or it, it is as, as demanding as your users, basically. But having that decoupled from the database has some advantages. Of course, being coupled to the database also has advantages, don't take me wrong, but being decoupled offers this leverage of you don't, you're not spending your resources on pulling. We are. The Superbase will, will basically do that. And again, just having that one point of contact that does all the IP shenanigans kills a lot of the problems uh, regarding migrations from IPv6 to IPv4. Otherwise, we would basically go to every of our customers and say, look, now you need to pay for IPv4. And that's not only a tricky communication problem, it can be an expensive problem. We don't want to, to do that to users. Apart from that, the supervisor offers us the ability to do some extra stuff. Because since it's not living on the database, we can do a bit more. Uh, for example, if we want um, to stop completely the instance, we should be able to, because then we don't have the pooler living on the stop database. It, it, it decouples the database from the connection itself. And that's by itself useful. And yeah, overall, it's just a more centralized, easier experience that, again, <laughs> Elixir makes it quite easy. And in fact, a lot of the supervisor code is based on the, what real-time was doing. And yeah, it's just a really solid piece of work that in big part because of, of, of Elixir's capability of clustering and load shedding, basically. How does, how does a, I mean, I'm, I'm sure load testing, like, I don't know, I don't know if you have any insights into load testing that, like, I, I know it can be challenging 
to build a pooler, like the the overhead of uh, you know managing the the database uh, level connections, just the sessions, for lack of a better word, and the client connections, and the overhead of like kind of balancing those, and maybe checking out more database connections when needed and stuff like that. Like uh, how how did that go? Like I know PG Bouncer can start dying after a point. Uh, PG Pool, I think, tries to do a little bit of PG Pool too or something. I, I wonder how, you know, what were the results of load testing a supervisor? I'm not sure. if I think there was load testing. I can't be sure, but I think there was some load testing. I think we've reached 1 million connections. I think 1 million was 1 million clients connecting not to 1 million databases, but to multiple databases. And again, I, I think that's where, that's another example on how Elixir can shine because yeah. since everything is a process, you can say, okay, look, you've connected to the database and the database will have this speed. And this speed now is how you connect with the pool. So if imagine that you want to do a transaction and you want to check out the connection, it becomes the DB connection checkout, the normal operation within Elixir. The big advantage is the, the garbage collection and the scheduler are really good for this kind of use case. Because imagine that you have 1 million connected users. And there's half of them are asleep. They don't do anything. They're, or if they do anything, it's really slow. It's not very heavy. And all of, all of that time, the, process, uh, the processes are asleep because the scheduler just goes, yeah, no messages, is com- no messages are coming into the, the mailbox. I'm not going to allocate any re- reductions to, to this process. While other more active processes, you can go, okay, now this one is heavy. This person is doing transactions. They're pushing a lot of data into a pool of 50 connections or whatever, persistent connections to the database. So yeah, this we need to allocate more of our scheduler here. So it becomes really a really good and strong use case for what the Beam is actually capable of. Because 1 million connected users does not mean 1 million active processes. It depends on the scheduler, it depends on what they're doing, and it depends on their requests. And for this use case, for the connection pooling use case, this is really true because then you, yeah, you might have twenty processes. Let's imagine you have a, you have a pool of twenty against your uh, database. You have twenty processes that are active, but everything else is asleep. And even then, they just they're just there to keep a connection. As soon as someone arrives, they'll be able to do a transaction easily, and all the processes in between will, will awake as expected. So it reduces load and usage by a lot, your system will be more performant because you don't need to care for a lot of those things because the scheduler will take care of that. While in other languages, you'd probably need to do some fancy threading, (laughs) kind of going, kill this one, bring this one up. This needs to be a task. But then you start to think, okay, this cannot be a task because we're not running in transaction mode. We're running in session mode, which keeps one connected, one connection always alive. It becomes a mess by then. And Elixir really is a really good fit for this use case where it might be there, but it might not be active. It's not taking CPU. It's not taking, it's taking RAM, but it's not taking CPU. And RAM, it's also really optimized because then the garbage collector will go through and, and check, okay, this, this has not been used for a while. Clean it up. Just keep the basic state and that's it. So even RAM is highly optimized for this. Yeah, that's, that's basically it. Elixir is a really good fix, a really good scalability partner to this kind of problem due to the scheduler, due to those optimizations that the Beam has had for the longest time. And for this particular use case where stuff might arrive and be basically bulk operations of a burst of 
tens of thousands of operations in a couple of minutes and then die off. And then those processes will basically go to sleep while others will do just a random call every one hour, but they do expect the response every hour. Yeah, that's that's basically it. It really fits the use case of the different profiles of users. And again, being detached from the database, it's also good because then probably our users don't need to upgrade right away because probably their cooler was actually doing a lot of CPU usage to actually do anything. This In this scenario, you just go, okay, we only need to upgrade because we have more connections, for example, or our queries are not as performant as they were, or we want to do something different. So it, it decouples a bit that concern. Yeah, very cool. I'm definitely going to give this a try. Yeah, uh, we're having problems at my work with uh, PG Bouncer, especially in the transaction mode side. And the way, I guess, Superbase looks like it, it works, it, it would be a replacement for exactly that. I, I don't even think it supports session pooling or needs to, I guess. <laughs> but that, that's really cool. If you want to try to, again, since our one of the mottos of Superbase is build independent, independent components that actually work together, you, you should be able to basically start up your supervisor instance uh, in a container. We don't, you don't need supervisor around it. Start the supervisor um, container, set up. Uh, it's basically a post request uh, where you basically say, look, this is the database you want to connect. This is the connection, uh, the amount of connections. I want to do this in transaction mode. And after that, it's, it's done. You, you should be able to have your connection puller. Um, awesome working yeah you should give it a try it's not it's not an heavy an heavy change it should be a drop in replacement um yeah. there's some there's still some things we're kind of ironing out uh, mainly because of prisma gemstack is gemstack they have multiple ways of doing multiple things and we're finding some of those issues at the moment but they're being fixed as as we speak awesome okay cool yeah, I mean, is there maybe we can just start to kind of wrap it up since we are kind of approaching the, the end of time, anyways. Is there anything that you think that you should let us know that we haven't uh, gotten to yet about you know what's going on um, real time or even other things you're doing with Elixir? So at the moment, the other thing we're doing with Elixir is again, as I mentioned, Logflare, and it could be an interesting an interesting thing to dwell dwell in because it's also really powerful use case because we use Broadway and that's mainly because of it. But I think if, if that might be better to talk with someone else, uh, Chase or, or Zinc, there are two developers. I can try to find their contact. Since we are kind of reaching 54 minutes, it might be too much to actually go into Logflare because otherwise it'd be probably another half an hour. <laughs> the other thing is we're actually looking for contributions. So someone from our community wanted to use more, more Superbase with their projects. She's developing, basically, she started this and basically we're, we're going to pick it up a bit on this development. Even internally, I want to dedicate some time to actually help with this library. Even if it's community driven, we should help it, of course. And it's basically Superbase. It's not only Postgres. It has some services on top of it, authentication, storage, etc. So, there's no, there's already some libs doing that for uh, for Supervise and Elixir, but I don't think they're properly maintained at the moment. I'm not 100% sure, but this one is probably the one that it's going to be the one. So yeah, we intend to support it and we're looking for more supporters and more contributors for, for the library. Because if we really want to look at Supervise as something you'd be able to use with your Elixir app as easily as possible. For example, I want to do a sign-in screen and use 
supervised uh, authentication service. And it becomes a couple of lines in the configuration and that's it. We want to use real time as your pub sub. Uh, imagine that you not able to, you want to cluster a bit easily and you don't want to go through the pains of PG sub clustering, et cetera. Then potentially you could use real time as a pub sub, a pub sub, um, backend. Uh, even if you don't use pub sub, I want to get and ingest real time changes and Postgres changes using Elixir. Then you'd be able to do. So yeah, that's the idea. It's basically start to have easier support for Superbase within the Elixir world. So yeah, this at least we're looking for more contributors here, and we should ramp up also our contributions during the this year to see if we get more people to use Elixir and Superbase together. Yeah, it's good to hear. I'm gonna transition us over to picks. Adi, I know you have a great pick for us. Do I? I can Actually, feel it. Don't let me down. Uh, I can feel it. <laughs> Yeah, can you come back to me? I, 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 at this time, I don't have any prepared. I'm, sh- I'm sure I'll have a great one in a couple, couple minutes. Sorry. <laughs> I know, I, I knew you didn't based on your face. That's why I pushed you on it. <laughs> no, it's, it's all good. We forgot to double check with you, Philip. Did, did you, did you pick something, or you, you were the, of the picking, right? No, I found something as we speak. I just saw sure. a TV show that I really enjoyed. <laughs> So go on. <laughs> that's the, yeah, that's the pick, right? The pick is the idea. It's just you're something you random. find a TV show, and that's the end. You're not going to tell us the name, anything about the plot, <laughs> anything at all. No, because it it will be really sad. Because since I have two kids, I only have time to catch up now with it, which is True Detective season one. <laughs> Finally, I was able to watch it. If someone didn't watch it, do watch it. Be careful because it's a bit on the heavy side. <laughs> it's not an easy watch, but it's it's really. It's really good. And I've never expected to say that Matthew McConaughey is one of my favorite actors. If you told me that in the 2000s, I would laugh at you. But yeah, Matthew McConaughey just killed it (laughs) with this. It's so weird to see a rom-com actor transition to Gritty Detective that it's just a badass. It's, It's a really good TV show. Really enjoyed it. Even if I'm late to the train. I heard that the biography of Matthew McConaughey is actually really, really good. I, I just heard about it, I think, last week or a week before. It's kind of inspiring. I guess you, like you said, people kind of typecasted him as, as that. And I think he turned down a lot of roles so he can get out of that. Yeah, the typecasting. Yeah. I've uh, seen recently, he actually landed the role for, what was it? For Cowboy Dallas Club. Because mm-hmm. of the first movie, he kind of went out of the way to not be a rom-com. So the director basically went, okay, finally I'm seeing a, a person I really like, and it's not the rom-com guy people are used to, so I'm going to do this casting to kind of blow expectations. And yeah, he delivered. And now we have probably one of the best actors coming out of rom-coms. Yeah, just shows how <laughs> you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, I guess. <laughs> because he was typecast because, yeah, tall, blonde guy, done, that, that's it. Nope, he actually has a lot of range. And I think True Detective shows that more than a lot of movies is, is done. It's so, so good. Yeah, there's a lot of actors that had issues like 1989 Batman, Michael Keaton. A lot of people protested yeah. against that. Bruce Willis, Die Hard, people also were against that. It's kind of crazy when people are against that. And then you come back to it now, you're like, well, of course. I mean, that's what uh, I know him as. Things have changed. Even even, even Christian Bale, when uh, when people said that Christian Bale would be the new Batman, yeah. people were against it. And now they say that Dark Knight is a piece of, of art, that it's the best Batman that ever existed. 
but they went, no, I don't want Christian Bale. There's a lot of opinions. <laughs> That's the problem. Too many. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, Adi, you, did you have something or shall I go ahead? Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, I, go. I, I got a couple ones. Uh, this is a, this is one some, I've been wanting to pick for a while. I've been forgetting. But since we talked about Postgres a little bit in terms of it, there's this document slash book called Internals of PostgreSQL. One of my coworkers recommended that to me a few months ago, and I, I just like read through it one weekend, and it just made me feel like I know more, much more about Postgres. Yeah, if you just Google internals for, of PostgreSQL, uh, it will come up. Uh, I can also like put a link to that in the show notes. I, I highly recommend that. There is also a Codebeam America that's happening in March. Early bird sale is, I think, out. Uh, definitely will be after this episode is published, but you can still volunteer to get a free ticket. You can volunteer and get a free virtual ticket or I think also in person. The only difference is if you volunteer, you have to do some, you know, volunteer activities like engage the audience on, on their app if you're doing it virtually or like physically ask questions and whatnot, right? But I think it's totally worth it. I've done it like four or five times and you get a free ticket for the conference. So I highly recommend that too. Uh, but that's it. Live hacks. That's proper live hacks. <laughs> <laughs> Since we're talking about ElixirConf, there's also ElixirConf EU. I'm, I'm really happy. To, I'm actually going to be a speaker. That's basically one life achievement done. I'm able, awesome. I'll be able to be a speaker on a, a large conf of something I really love. But yeah, I think they also have their early bird tickets already live. And I know their very early bird tickets actually sold out in two hours. So it seems that it will oh. be packed. I think I think ElixirConf EU, that's also run by... Uh, oh my God, am I forgetting the name? name? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, what, what's the name of the company? Oh my god, we are gonna have to edit this out. I, I can't. That, that, it's the uh, same. It's the same as ElixirConf. Yeah. Oh yeah. no. I, oh, I thought it was different. It's, I thought the Code no, no, Beam. No. Code Beam is run by what's the name of the company? Erlang Foundation, right? Uh, Earl, that's a company, right? <laughs> Man, Erlang Solutions. Erlang Solutions. How how can I forget? I'm sorry. I thought yeah, ElixirConf EU was run by them too, but maybe only one year they did it. I think anyway. If they do, they also have the volunteering opportunity. They do, they do. They okay, do. awesome. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I think any conferences that Erlang Solutions run, they have the volunteering opportunity and do volunteering and get a free ticket. So yeah, life hack, as Philip said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually have uh, uh, four friends that went last year exactly in the same, the same way. And they were able to participate in a lot of stuff. Awesome. Okay. And for me, uh, yeah, th- I have... Uh, two picks. I'm just going to give the kind of self thing first, right? So again, I'm still looking for any potential work. So if anybody's looking for some help in Erlang or Elixir, uh, Rust or Flutter, uh, definitely hit me up. So you can find me on Twitter, A-L-L-E-N-W-Y-M-A or at uh, my company's website, plangora.com. Second plug, which I think is very interesting. Uh, So I did mention in the last meetup, Adi, I think you might remember this, but I'm doing this uh, Elixir Erlang meetup across Asia. We just did the first meetup yesterday when this was recorded on the 17th. So that was the 16th of January. We had Robert Verding as our first uh, presenter. So it was great that's, to have him on there. That's really did. good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So because of this podcast, I managed to kind of talk to the right people and, and uh, you know, convince them. And, and uh, anyway, anyways, enough of my awesome uh, awesomeness. Anyways, uh, it was great <laughs> to have him on uh, because he gave his speech. You can find it online, the Erlang Rationale, I believe it's called. And um, yeah, it, it was actually great. Like we had about thirty-nine people online and seven people in in uh, in person. I mean, it doesn't sound like huge numbers, but for such a niche language and 
Hong Kong, which is a super small place, and in Asia, which is not known to be a, a place of Erlang Elixir developers. It's quite a lot of people. And I would say like 99% of those people already have worked with the Beam. But yeah, that's huge. And so again, I'm going to announce the next meetup is going to be uh, the 13th of February. So the day before Valentine's Day. So no excuse for any guys out there. Uh, definitely show up. <laughs> It's 7.30 p.m. Hong Kong time. And I'm also proud to announce that it will be Jose Valim is going to be our keynote speaker. So if anybody wants to you know, give a quick talk, a lightning talk or anything like that, let me know. I'm looking for some more people to present. Otherwise, it's going to be just a simple Q&A session with Jose. Let's try to keep the uh, type questions to a minimum because <laughs> I'm sure he's annoyed <laughs> by all the questions. <laughs> But in any case, uh, it's a great opportunity for anybody. So these events, I just want to reiterate, yes, they're based for Asia. But I just want to make it clear that this is not like if you're not Asian or in Asia, you can join. No, it's anybody can join, but they're in Asian time zones. So that way they kind of better hurt, uh, better help people in Asia because we're always kind of left out of stuff happening in uh, Europe and uh, US. So uh, just look for Erlang and Elixir Meetup on meetup.com. Go ahead and join the group. And uh, yeah, that's uh, my two picks. You should uh, mm-hmm. advertise that as uh, spend your Valentine's with Jose. <laughs> yeah, but it's the day before, right? Ah, close enough. Close enough. I guess with time zone, maybe. You just, could, yeah, yeah, but... you just need to wait until midnight. And everyone yeah, we, will be yeah, in the room play with that. Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, last time. So the last meetup that happened with, with Robert like was crazy. We started at 7.30 and we ended at 10. We're supposed to end actually at 9.00. So, uh, we, yeah, I think there was like in, at least an hour of questions from people in the audience. So, like, definitely, if you guys never get a chance to talk to uh, Jose, this would be the opportunity for you. As long as you that. avoid type systems, because he's real, he must be really tired of that discussion. Yeah, <laughs> I had a slight discussion with him about types at uh, Codebean in <laughs> Berlin, because I knew he wasn't going to be annoyed. My only question was, is, is the syntax that you show on your presentation going to be the final one? That was the only question I dared to ask because I know he's getting this all the time. And yeah. then I did see that yeah. they just announced uh, what last week or something like, "Hey, yeah. we're 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 making progress." Or I forgot what the announcement was. Gradually like, typed. Yeah, Gradually but, like, typed like, there was no blog post. 17. There was no more information. It was like very super yeah. small update that was a little bit not. It was a screenshot of his terminal, <laughs> which looked about the I same think... as as uh, I think the. The presentations that he's been doing now, which uh, I mean, it's, it's a bit. I think it's a bit different. It's basically. I think you actually can use it now. If you pull master from Elixir, what oh, happens is now? What it is? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So it's already in master. The idea, if I'm not mistaken, it's in one dot seventeen. We'll start to see warnings appear due to gradual typing, and the idea for now it's exactly it's exactly that. It's a new warning system to avoid uh, basically avoid type errors and. If I'm not mistaken, the idea is for the, the core libraries, and the, sorry, the core modules to have that gradual type and start to warn you about potential type issues. That's why it's, I think that's why it's called the gradual type system because it's still doing some inference and it's doing mm-hmm. some magic to understand what you're passing. It's still not the final situation. I think he, in the tweet, he actually mentioned that this is not the end all be all. This is for sure getting into the language. I think this is more on the side of, yeah, we, we are able to use part of the features now to warn you and to have a more complete, uh, a better warning system on what you could be doing wrong, but it's not the end of it. Okay. Yeah. I might but if you pull, I think if you pull thing. master, yeah, I think if you pull master, you should be able to actually use it and then see some of the, some of the changes. Okay. Yeah. I can definitely take a look at it. That sounds interesting. Okay. Philippe, it was good to, good, Philip, it was good to have you on. 
Audi, it's also nice to see you, aka Audi. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, thank you so much for for having me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, again, anything Elixir related, I just get completely hyped up. So being able to talk about Elixir on my daily job, it's extra rewarding, and it's always good to be to share and, and kind of show that the community is actually growing, that companies are using it. They are using it at scale. I'm not going to use web scale. I don't want to have that trademark attached. But yeah, uh, Elixir is strong. It's, I think, getting healthier as we speak. And a lot of the success of the features we're delivering, it's due to the to the Elixir and the BMVM power more than, mm-hmm. than anything else. So really glad to be part of the conversation and, and of sharing what we've learned until now. Yeah, it's good to have you on to talk about the stuff because I totally figured about load testing. So now, now you got me worried about load testing my stuff. <laughs> K6, go for it. One script and, also, and you should also, see a lot of a lot of headaches. <laughs> is it it's it's uh, Igor, right? Or is it Igor? I forget which Igor, Igor. Igor, yeah. So now you got me worried. What, what the heck is this Igor guy? Now I'm gonna be warning that all oh. night. All right. Uh, again, it's good to have you on, and uh, we'll probably do for another next year another catch up and still in beta. <laughs> I'm guessing. Yeah, we'll have beta three years in a row or something like that. For example, Supervise, it's still, I think it's not GI still. We're, we're not calling GI yet, I think. Okay. Again, I think people jump too fast into GI at the moment. They see that potentially their investors are not happy with the fact that they have a beta in, in their name or something like that. And I think sometimes people rush uh, thinking about money and end up actually getting some backlash later. So I think that's the final tip. Be careful with what you consider GA <laughs> and, and check load testing as a potential way to give you more confidence on that. <laughs> okay. And with that, my dogs are giving us the sound. It's time to end this. <laughs> so good to have you on and hope to see you again in the future. Thank you.